For July 29th, 2013, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 265, The Wolverine. I can't bear to change, so I must live with a bear. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matthew Rather from Los Angeles, California, and I am here with the panel tonight to overthink X-Men Tokyo Drift. <laughs> <laughs> well played, well played. That is to say, The Wolverine, uh, which is I different. I live my life one mutant power at a time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, panel, in honor of uh, living your life one mutant power at a time, what, uh, what real-world corporation should steal an X-Man's uh, or X-Woman's um, mutant power uh, in order to bolster its uh, sagging fortunes? What, uh, what corporation should, should pull a um, – what corporation should pull a, a Yashida – I just coined that term, and uh, you know, and get in league with uh, get in league with evil mutants to steal a mutant power. I'm gonna have to think about this one, but fortunately, I don't go first. We drink because that honor belongs to Peter Fenzel. Thank you very much. Now, of course, blanket spoiler warnings for The Wolverine. Uh, I don't think we're going to give away anything that happened in Wolverine Origins, because I don't think any of us saw it. But The Wolverine, the new Hugh Jackman movie, there will be blanket spoilers for. I'm going to, as some of you may know, uh, American Airlines announced a couple months ago that they're going to buy U.S. Airways to create the largest airline in the world. As you also know, uh, American Airlines uh, declared bankruptcy in 2011, uh, leading one to think that perhaps uh, enlarging themselves and creating an even larger uh, uh, an even larger enterprise might cause some potential future problems with financing and liquidity. And as we all know, if there are two things that airlines have been really trying to do to solve what they see as their business problems, it's fly cheaper and make things more unpleasant. So I'm going to go with Banshee, the X-Men Banshee, (laughs) who has the mutant power of flight, which either, depending upon how you look at it, comes from his psionic, his limited psionic abilities, or comes from his primary trademark uh, eponymous power to scream at supersonic levels uh, or at sonic levels that are disabling and or disorienting. So you could get onto an American Airlines flight, which could get you anywhere in the world without any gas, uh, but you would be subject to constant subduing and traumatically uh, just obliterating screams That's issuing <laughs> from, the, uh, from the cockpit all the way down. From the cockpit, not from your fellow passengers. I mean, I, I was about to say, like, being subject to obliterating screams, uh, we're, we're none of us a stranger to that phenomenon if you've ever flown in the same row as a baby or something. Yeah, exactly. Well, there are certain mutants where they're important enough that bad guys try to turn their mutant powers against them. I don't think Banshee is really that important. It's just like, oh, that guy is screaming. Let's deal with it. Rather than like, oh, we need to create an anti-Banshee that will scream at the first Banshee and defeat him. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> The passengers will basically just tough it through and hope that the guest run you know, of that particular uh, ca- character is finished soon. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Mark Lee, you're next in the alphabet. 
All right, my answer is a little bit of a cop out because the first uh, struggling, uh, financially struggling entity and most prominent financially struggling entity that comes to mind these days is not a corporation, but the city of Detroit. So, That's um, so the city of Detroit should uh, incorporate the mutant powers of Emma Frost because I believe she can turn herself into a diamond-like thing, right? Or let's just say yes, yeah, she, she can, can turn herself, she can herself into, into the diamond. She turn yes. herself into diamond. So the city of Detroit can take on that power, turn like vacant lots and abandoned buildings into diamonds, and put that up as collateral and use that to help pay <laughs> off their debts, <laughs> and also you know like uh, pay for cops and so, things. So wait, so you're saying put it up as a collateral? So you think that the city of Detroit, despite recently declaring bankruptcy, will be able to get a multi-billion-dollar securitized loan based on a, a, a number of enormous immovable diamond <laughs> vacant lots? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that is my plan. Well, gosh, if only Detroit had a large uh, potentially uh, valuable set of assets that were uh, nonetheless immovable and illiquid that were useless in solving its financial problems, such as hundreds of thousands of houses. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> oh, I was, I was about to, I thought you were about to say like 80% of the car production capacity of the United States. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, 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 even, like a ton of, a ton of factories standing empty in, uh, you know. Yeah. The upshot is they could get January Jones to try to sell, to try to like uh, secure the loan contracts. She could come in and act all snide. And, she, and she, she wouldn't be the, the, the first cast, man of, a cast member of Mad Men to do a car commercial. <laughs> True. Yeah. Hey, that's, those are the, the dulcet tones of the rich chocolatey baritone of John Parrish. John, what up? What up? What up? What up? What up? So the company I choose to step in and save is the ailing, uh, formerly known as Research in Motion, now simply BlackBerry, the, uh, the also-ran of cell phone uh, manufacturers and software developers, struggling, clearly just about to lose and bow out of the, the cell phone race entirely, but kept on by a few government contracts. So what they clearly need is an element of sabotage. So if BlackBerry became not just a sort of also-ran in terms of operating systems, but the most reliable phone on the market by virtue of the fact that no other phone had any sort of reliable connection because for some odd reason they kept shorting out, then, of course, BlackBerry would regain all their market share and become hugely popular, and we'd be comfortable with the fact that you can't really touch the screen. You just have to scroll around it and stuff. So I'm talking, of course, about the... Mutant master of magnetism himself, Magneto. So I, of course, propose that BlackBerry, you know, somehow steal his powers and then magnetize rival phones on rival operating systems in order to keep them from uh, working. Excellent. I thought for a second you were going to say it was going to be Gambit, and they want everyone to have Gambit's power so their iPhones charge up with explosive kinetic energy whenever they use them. Uh, <laughs> then you could throw them in sort of an acrobatic fashion while stick twirling. Uh, I think I think Dell already took that power and it backfired on them. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Uh, well, you you kind of you you anticipated mine because mine was going to be the I want to revive the ailing fortunes of Dell computer. I owned uh, before before I made the switch. I owned many many Dell computers. Uh, well, no, not many. Uh, by many, I mean two, um, which is many, I guess, for computers. I and they, uh, I love. Going online using their configurator, uh, they were the, the the an early uh, early adopter of that on the website and stuff like that. But but have fallen on some hard times as the PC market has gone uh, a different way. So I would like um, I would like them to absorb the powers of Rogue 
And uh, for Dell to be able to, uh, through skin-to-skin contact with an Apple computer, uh, to absorb all the engineering prowess and also the kind of market desirability uh, that Apple products have so that, uh, so that Dell products can take on uh, all the attributes of Apple products and there can be finally again a, a thriving Dell, uh, Dell computer. Do you think Mystique's powers wouldn't be sufficient? <laughs> if they were merely to look as if they had all the abilities of Apple products. No, that that that's that's Samsung. That's not Dell. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I also thought when John, uh, I always thought the Magneto one was going to be the sharper image because they went bankrupt probably because of an insufficient number of rotating, swirling, magnetic things that they would sell at the airport and or at the mall. So if only they could up the ante further. But uh, but yeah, I think RIM could use better. I mean, Sharper Image isn't even a company anymore. Magneto would have had to step in in 2008. It's too late. Too little too late for the Sharper Image. Isn't one of Rogue's powers also to uh, not be able to have a boyfriend because of a little touching thing? So, you know, that'd be a little bit hard for Adele to get that physical intimacy. Yeah, I mean, I guess oh, so. I mean, you'd have to, like, stack the computers one on top of each other. Do you think, like, the Dell guy is, like, really, does really great with the ladies? Or do you think he has kind of a rogue-like aversion to personal contact? It's like, dude, you're getting to Dell, and I, you're getting a Dell, and I'm going to my room. Oh, <laughs> oh. Well, that's sad. I guess. Oh, uh, so we're here to talk about the Wolverine, the Wolverine, the the one and the only, by which we mean the the film, one of the many films uh, that features it's just Hugh, the one, yeah, that features Hugh Jackman uh, as Wolverine, also um, as Jean Valjean at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, yeah, right, dragging a uh, uh, dragging an officer in the Japanese army through the sewers of Paris. Uh, <laughs> or are you talking about him all crazy and bearded living in the woods? <laughs> the latter, yeah. <laughs> oh, he's gonna I thought... steal the, ad- he's gonna, the bishop's going to give him the adamantium candlesticks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought that that, I thought that, that that early scene could have been helped by, you know, I don't know, a river of poop, right? Ru- <laughs> running through the... Uh... Look down, look down, because I'm not looking and I don't know if there's a pool there. Look down. <laughs> um... Yeah. Uh, well, where where to begin? I mean, we we don't really do this a lot, but um, uh, but did you like this film? I mean, did did you enjoy the experience of of watching this movie? Panel. Yes. Yes, yes. I did. I sort of. I liked it. So my I'll I'll throw this in first, and I'll let other folks respond to it. My take on it was that it. It felt more like a crime drama featuring occasional superheroes than a superhero movie. And I think that was to its benefit because most of the movie, up until the very ending, is about this mysterious family, the Yoshida family, and all these weird like intergenerational politics that Wolverine sort of happens to find himself thrust into. And half the time he's spent puzzling that out, like, who's on whose side? What's going on here? And the other half of the time he spends fighting Yakuza and ninjas. So... I I liked it. I thought it it moved pretty well. Writing was okay-ish. Characterization was very interesting. Yeah, I thought I, I thought that was interesting. I saw that you posted that when you posted that on Facebook, and I thought, well, way to give away the podcast, John. You know, you got to hold something back. So, people- <laughs> oh come on. <laughs> I mean, I I don't. I mean, maybe it was because I was influenced by John, but I totally saw it as such. I mean, I, I saw a lot of. Um, 
a lot of like Philip Marlowe st- kind of stuff in there. You know, sort of the old man character was reminiscent of the Big Sleep, right? And and sort of uh, yeah, yeah, very much so, yeah, definitely. And like the sort of the old man with the young daughter, and someone is trying to kill the daughter, but you don't really know what whose side everybody is on, and and this idea that you know eventual death versus the of the people who are old not wanting to die versus the people who are younger but not young not really having a reason to live is like very noirish right and it's it's uh it felt sort of similar to i mean noirish not necessarily the sense of when you say that something is film noir what are the characteristics that make it film noir more like a characteristic of certain detective stories that also happen to be in the film noir genre uh i think is is and often involve sort of rich families in their in their internal politics but yeah i really liked it. i mean i'm sure mark is going to jump into the obvious thing which is i feel like the first thing we have to tackle about it uh but other than that just all aside i loved the genre choice for the movie and i i love that there's so many when we say superhero movie at this point it almost seems like we're assuming that it's a coming of age story because so many of them are coming of age stories and it's you coming of age once and then the sequel you come of age again because you somehow came out of age in the intervening time right it's like you are finally spider-man and you go back and you're like hey are you spider-man anymore eh Maybe oh, you, should have another, you should have another coming of age story, and now you're Spider Man, right? And it's like you come back later. Hey, are you Spider Man still? And it's like I was, but I I don't know. There are changes going on in my body, and I'm getting strange hair places, and so now you're Spider Man. It just gets tedious. I mean, they're either romantic comedies, they're either like man on man romantic comedies, or or like coming of age stories. And it was really cool to see a Superman, a superhero applied to a genre piece that was different and that showed that a superhero character can function uh and do a story where they are already the superhero character now of course there was some like oh go ahead john yeah where they're where they're established where they have history and i mean it's it's a limitation of of all superhero movies in that you know the the superhero the the protagonist's powers are usually presented as pretty definitive like it's it's never a question of whether Superman is strong enough to lift the thing. He's always strong enough. The question is, will he or won't he? It's never a question of whether Wolverine's healing factor is powerful enough to sustain him from an inordinate amount of injury. Of course it is. The question is, will he you know, get there in time or won't he? So it's, it's, it's always more a question of will than of capability, which I guess could be said of a lot of movies. But anyway, so it was... It was interesting to see a movie where that question of will is applied to, you know, an established superhero, will, you know, who may or may not be willing to bring himself back, back into, I guess, the cycle of life, bring himself out of the cave, literally in this case, uh, versus you know a superhero who's on the cusp of adulthood and you know who is reluctant to who's reluctant to engage because of the hero, uh, because of the heroic journey reluctance. Like, oh, the hero refuses the call, the hero leaves the homeland, travels on, defeats the beast, receives the elixir, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, Joseph Campbell, Monomyth, etc. Yeah, and I mean, just as much of this movie is about Wolverine parsing out what to do with the Yoshidas and that whole situation, and also to deal with the whole Jean Grey stuff and his new girlfriend and whatnot, as it is to deal with whether he wants to still be the Wolverine or not. Uh, I feel like that that was part of the script. Like, they put it into the script, but it wasn't the consuming arc of Wolverine's character. It was like, I don't want to be Wolverine anymore. He still was kind of Wolverine, even when he wasn't Wolverine. He was just depressed, right? (laughs) It's it's just like, I'm really down. I'm not going to kill anyone anymore, mostly because I'm not going to run into them. (laughs) And as soon as someone shows up, well, there goes that plan. Well, I want, well yeah, I, there's, I, yeah. there's there's Wolverine, the you know 
the feral man beast who lives in the wild and yeah. who just hunts things for sport. And there's Wolverine, the the Ronin for justice, who you know uses his blades that are affixed to the back of his hand uh, in the service of you know good and you know sticking up for the little guy. Yeah. And his question, and Wolverine's deciding like which one do I want to be? Yeah, and also I, I mean it's not exactly the little guy, right? Like it's a it's a billions of worth billions of dollars multinational corporation in this case. <laughs> Though I suppose I suppose by you know by synecdoche it's a woman, so that makes it a little guy, right? Huh. Yeah, I mean, I guess that yeah, because she's an underdog, because she's young and she's vulnerable and all that other stuff. Uh, I mean, the other, the other, the other dichotomy, the Wolverine dichotomy, that's kind of from the comics lore, is adamantium Wolverine versus bone Wolverine, mm-hmm. right? And and when Wolverine is introduced in this movie, we see bone claw Wolverine. Probably, I think for the first time in the X Men movies. Although, again, we didn't watch X Men Origins, so they probably show bone Wolverine in that. Um, but yeah, the idea wait, that, yeah. that when he's in the well, when he's in the well, kind of holding onto the things. You mean then, right? Yeah, when they establish that he is, like, a superhero, that he has, like, unhuman powers, it's shown that he has the claws, that he's digging into the sides of the well. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, yeah, those are the bone claws of Wolverine after Magneto strips his adamantium skeleton in the comics. And then, of course, after that point, they go back and forth in various points in time. You know, he has it taken away, he has it given back, and, uh, you know, he has different, slightly different power profiles in each situation. Wait, wait, wait. wait. At what point point did Magneto, because that was, you know, uh, 1940. Five, that, right? that's, that's in the comics. That's, that's not in the old, comics. I'm sorry. I'm talking about Wolverine. Lines. I'm talking about Wolverine lore. I, I mean, in the movies, Magneto, as far as I know, never strips out the adamantium for Wolverine's skeleton. They, and in fact, he doesn't even get the adamantium stripped out of his skeleton. He merely has his adamantium claws chopped off, such that his bone claws grow back, but the adamantium doesn't. Right, because so it's, still not, had, yeah, it's yeah. not part of his body. But but you're saying in in when when he's in Nagasaki, that's bone claw Wolverine, right? Because it's before he's gone through the Project X program. Okay, right. So, yes. Yeah, so the, the Wolverine was this, was a mutant, right? And he had the powers of the claws and the healing factor since he was born. I mean, they developed as he grew up. He was sort of allergenic and all this other stuff. I mean, again, well, I don't know what they did in Wolverine Origins tell the story, but I read the Origins comic book that they issued a bunch of years ago. Uh, and then eventually he goes on journeys all over the world. He spends a lot of time in Japan. Uh, and then eventually he ends up in the Canadian Weapon X program, which infuses him with the adamantium stuff and also kind of wipes his memory and brainwashes him and all this other stuff. And, now, we, and, should, we should add that this, the, the, the storyline you're recounting is largely comic book storyline. Yeah, yeah. I know. Because, totally. like, that that like yeah. in the continuity of the movies, by the way, I did see Wolverine Origins, and I think they seem to be sticking with that. Okay. Uh, in the continuity of the movies, I believe this is Wolverine's first time to Japan. In okay. that he seems a little mystified by stuff, and he doesn't speak any Japanese at all, as we see several times, to somewhat comic effect. Right. And, well, I mean, his first time in Japan, not counting when he was a prisoner in, in Nagasaki. So, okay, I guess, you know, he, he spent some time there in, in WW2, obviously, but the, the whole comic book lore of him, you know, operating out of Asia and, and meeting the Yoshida family prior to that is not present in this movie. Right. And so I guess this is a good time to kick it over to Mark, who probably complained about some of the obvious problems with the movie, because uh, it seems like as natural segue as they're going to be. Mark, we, you didn't get a chance to say what you thought of the movie, really. Yeah, okay. So you guys are bringing up a lot of great things about Wolverine's character that we absolutely should explore and get back to. But I just wanted to, you know, uh, to get my opportunity to say my general impressions about the movie um, you know, while we uh, were still in the earlier part of the podcast. Now, Pete, I'm not quite sure what you think that my problems with the movie are. Um, but let me just go ahead and say it and see if this, if this matches up with you. Um, the ending was such a train wreck. 
that it nearly completely destroyed all of the cool things that happened prior to that, right? The fact that uh, Grandpa Yashida is like this villain who just kind of come to, for me, came out of nowhere and at the end was not really convincing as like, you know, the big bad who's been uh, screwing with things all along. I did not buy that at all. Um, the constant shifting allegiances at the end, particularly with the grand, granddaughter's uh, ninja boyfriend, right, who after he gets stabbed, is something like, oh, I should fight the, uh, the evil poison woman in my midst. Oh, God, you've um, stabbed some sense into me. Exactly, right? <laughs> and just the overall crazy, uh, like, Batman forever kind of feel to the end. Um, and the, the, the robot, the big robot ninja... The robot samurai at the end, as much as I feel like I, I should have liked that, felt just so completely off from the rest of the movie that it really took me out of the uh, the real sense of atmospherics and character development that had happened up until that point. Um, well, I think the reviewers have, have the, the, the consensus among reviewers, from what I, I gathered, that that last third of the movie is um, is, is the movie's weak weak uh, weak part for sure. Um, so it just kind of you know leaves it to you to be like, well, does that kind of destroy the uh, or erase the progress that uh, or the cool things you see at the first two thirds of the movie. For me, I'm really on the fence right now. I've been going back and forth since I saw it a few hours ago. Uh, I, I don't know where, where I land on it right okay, now. So but that's the, I mean, like, so then I, let me make the let me make the point that I I don't know if Pete you were expecting Mark to make this point, but let me make the point that this shares the this shares the weakness of a lot of like American in a foreign culture movies where the the foreign culture seems to exist uh, not for its own sake but to kind of shed light on the uh you know on the white protagonist's inner struggle it does have this kind of like john smith pocahontas uh you know i don't know sort of structural weakness in the story but sort of setting setting that aside what mark is talking about this sort of like who's you know who's the who's the big bad right like snake lady uh ninja boyfriend in league with snake lady right uh iron man san right like who who's the uh you know what's what's the sort of climax of this movie was actually of a piece for me with a kind of confusion that 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 was present throughout the movie and that we've kind of been talking about a little bit and that I think John uh, that I think that John hit on when when he was talking about genre when he brought up genre with this movie because I I think this movie is like a strange beast that is uh, nor fish nor fowl right like the, I I think that the the melding of the um, superhero coming of age story the kind of not coming of age story but the superhero identity story um, which is uh, you know which culminates in I am Wolverine right. Um, and the the very interesting crime movie or political drama, uh, I think that they're they're melded together in a way that's not ultimately a successful marriage of the two. And I would like, uh, you know, I don't know, I would like more stakes in the coming of age story, and I would like more detail and depth and sort of um, sort of depth of culture and kind of depth of environment and sort of nuance and texture of environment in the crime. Uh, in the crime story, the culture, the the culture, and the kind of family drama story, right? And I, I felt like I got short shrift in in both of those respects. That was my reaction to the, to yeah, the, the film, anyway. The family drama, the crime drama, is a bit is a bit short changed in favor of, as you say, using using culture as a as an expository tool, uh, if for lack of a better word. It's uh, although I. 
I mean, I mean, we we describe it as as something that that often happens with Americans abro- Americans abroad in these in these sort of films. And the issue I always have with it is not is not necessarily the you know the orientalization, if that's a word, of a particular culture. Which you know, obvious identity politics issues with aside, it's it's the fact that it presumes an it presumes an awareness in the characters of the aspects of their culture that have an effect on them. Which is beyond the awareness that most, you know, otherwise unexamined people have. In other words, you have a lot of scenes where there are characters saying, like, oh, in my culture, you know, it's very important to, you know, pay homage to one's father, you know, and to respect traditions and things like that. Whereas in reality, the effect that culture has on us is often difficult to pinpoint exactly. Like, we're all products of a culture, you know, like all of us, you know, American culture to, to greater and lesser degrees. What? What? I know, right? And I doubt I doubt that any of us could pinpoint exactly like, you know, like if some, you know, if we were if we were the secondary characters in a movie, like if some, you know, if some samurai from the mists of time, you know, appeared in 21st century Boston and I tagged along with him and he was confused about things and I said like, "Well, uh, in America, it's common for, you know, it's common for guys to dress with, you know, open, you know, their shirts unbuttoned a couple buttons to sort of, like, hint at their masculinity. That'd be a really, like, oddly diagnostic comment for me to make. And yet in a movie where the, where the roles are inverted and it's an American in Japan, for instance, that, that goes without saying. Yeah, this is more along the lines of what I expected Mark's complaint about the movie to be, because as much as we joke that it's X-Men Tokyo Drift, this is a pre-Tokyo Drift movie about Asian people, right? Where it's like every time there's an Asian person on screen, there's also a pagoda or a Buddha statue or a ninja, right? It's like nobody just nobody just eats dinner. They like have, you know, it's like, let's, kneel, let's kneel at the table and let, like talk about the, the chopsticks representing incense. And, like, and it's, like, it's like, oh, they go into the guy's house and all the women are either robot scientists are wearing kimonos and it's just like this is it's like there's no it's it's like when we talked about this a little bit in the tokyo drift podcast you know this is the main reason why justin lynn almost didn't do tokyo drift because the first the first uh draft of the script was all like oh they drift by a buddhist temple and they like drift by you know it's like i mean this is not the way that human beings actually live people you know like this is we're not this is not a night at the museum you know where it's like a natural history museum and you got the cavemen and they've got their you know their ice fishing and their walrus or whatever you know it's not like a frozen caricature of what a people are like japan is not like like that is is basically yeah. like what? what the main issue is, and it's not just that, but it's the it's the in context consciousness of it that adds to it even worse. Like there's this scene where Wolverine's bodyguard, uh, you know, vanishes at one point and reappears in a in a kimono and you know with her hair all done up. And I see this, and of course, up to this point, we've seen her just acting very competently and very directly. I'm thinking, hey, what happened to the badass chick in biker boots? And literally, as I'm thinking that, Wolverine's next line is, hey, what happened to the badass chick in biker boots? <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay, well, well, thank you for thank you for pinning the tail on that one for me, movie. Thank you for reminding me that we are, in fact, in a different culture. And in case you missed it, we're going to have everyone else comment on it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. really, yeah, way to hang a lantern on... on uh 
on that one. I mean, no. when, it was down to the point where when I saw the like the the you know I don't know treasured painting that had been in in his family for centuries, right? It was like, how is this going to be defaced? And uh, and it turns out it was actually the badass chicken biker boots who did it by like sticking a, stuck a knife in it, sticking <laughs> a, right, right, exactly, sticking a scalpel in it. Now I I wanna I mean I wanna backpedal a little bit on on this stuff about uh, about Orientalism or about the whole kind of um, uh, I, I'm looking for a word that means kind of using using a, kind of uh, using a culture for the the value it has in setting setting the protagonist in relief. It's not. It's not strictly speaking, or sort of like an exotic exoticism, sure. sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like that. that is something, something like that. And I, I, I'm not sure I have the exact word, but I, I want to backpedal on on what I've said about that because I actually think that there is a there's a point worth making, and there's a point worth making again and again uh, about America specifically. But like, but like John said, and that I, it actually it blows my mind, John, that because it like it. Re- I think you hit the nail right on the head with. Um, it presumes with the idea that like all of this stuff presumes a, a level of self knowledge that that you know even even those of us with with well examined lives have um, the the uh, the point that's worth making about American culture is that uh, America sort of presumes to have no debt to history and that's one of the unique things about American character. Um, and and on it, honest to God, when I went, I went twice and worked in Japan as an actor, and I went for on on tour uh, for two stretches in the nineties. And um, I was warned about a lot of things, and one of these things was don't stick your chopsticks in the rice, right? Like it was like in the it was in the orientation packet, and the idea <laughs> that that I, I'm not joking, right? Like the idea that this that this culture in particular, um, you know, or at least parts of it, or at least in itself conception right like pays pays a debt to to history and to tradition and to um to established forms of behavior and that 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 those forms of behavior uh are very important where you know whereas in the states we you know unbutton our top buttons right like that this is a this is a a sort of interesting thing uh, about america versus the rest of the world right because in in the states um we we and and much more for us here on the west coast i guess uh than you guys on the east coast where you 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 know I don't know walk past revolutionary war sites or the or the like the make way for duckling statues on on Boston Common. Um, we you know in Los Angeles we tear down history we tear down buildings when they're five years old. You know it's 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 the new the new the the latest the newest um, the newest thing uh, all the time and that that. Um, I don't know that that's an that's an aspect of the American character that that is kind of interesting and kind of worth highlighting. People have often brought that up and talking about uh, reasons for America's dominance in technology scene and technology industry, right? This idea that like disruption is a particularly American value of sorts. And you don't see that in Asian cultures and a lot of other uh, European cultures that are uh, ostensibly more tied to tradition, Um, which I I, I sure I see some of that, but it it could be argued. But I want to zoom back out and and come back to this uh, larger question about Orientalism. And and I'm flattered, guys. I'm flattered that (laughs) that you assumed that uh, I would take issue with the uh, with the Orientalism, the exoticism of how Japan is portrayed in this movie. And uh, all your points are extremely well taken. I'm, I'm for the most part on board with you on that. 
I will admit, though, that I did not really quite feel that way. So let me try to explain a little bit of this for you. First of all, for those of you who are new to this podcast, I'm an Asian person. You know, I'm often looked to on this podcast for issues around race and ethnicity and things like that. Um, but I'm a Korean person. So one of the weird things about being Korean is that you look to other yeah, East Asian countries, cultures like China and particular Japan with an interesting sense of wonder and exoticism. Like, I, <laughs> as I was watching this movie and seeing all the uh, pagodas and the ninjas and the, you know, the funky Shinto, or is it Buddhist, uh, you know, the Japanese um, uh, funeral ceremony, I'm, I'm eating this up. I'm like, this, <laughs> this is awesome. Japan is so strange and different. And like, I cannot get enough of this. I mean, like, that's, maybe that's like the underthinking it uh, point of view here. This is like what the in mainstream uh, white American audience is, is, is reacting to and what the filmmakers were going for. But that was honestly, that was the effect that it had on me. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I sort of said it. I, I knew coming into this podcast that I was going to regret somewhat talking about this topic because I feel like I'm not offended enough by it to, like, rise <laughs> to the standard that will inevitably be set. Like, I, I kind of, whenever, sometimes I walk into an internet thread and I know that whatever position I'm eventually going to say just isn't going to be strong because of the dominant discourses, right? And it's like, one of them is, like, defending ever, defending ever the way that, uh, ethnic minorities, or in the case of you know Asia, majorities are uh, are reflected on screen. Like you know, you could be like, ah, it was fine. People will generally not agree with you because it's never fine. There's always something wrong. Um, but yeah, but it's like, and part of it is, and I think this has to do with the Wolverine lore too. Is that you know the Wolverine. Wolverine's relationship with ninjas is something that goes way back, um, and, <laughs> um, and the in particular, I'm also thinking a bit about kind of Batman lore and Batman's relationship with the East, but also just like the Lady Deathstrike, you know, is a big thing for Wolverine, and and there is a. Uh, there's a fictionalized Japan, a stylized fictionalized Japan that is present in the Marvel Universe that I feel like was being reflected here, and it was a bit less that they were trying to reflect actual Japan and a bit more like they were reflecting a comic book of Japan that already had been um, exoticized. It was sort of like pre-exoticized, sure. right? Um, and so it's like, you can go back and you can try to like, you know, you can try to wipe out Wolverine's kind of... Uh, you know, colonial journey uh, through the various places he served before he entered the Weapon X program, including like his World War One service and all this other stuff. Uh, you can try to not look at it the way that it was looked at when the comics were made, and you can try to make it really convenient and make Wolverine a champion of tolerance. Um, but usually, Wolverine is not so much a champion of tolerance as like kind of a champion of results. And he's sort of like, okay, well, we got through this thing, you know, like it worked out. Uh, I'm never really going to understand this culture, but that's not really what I'm here to do. Like, I'm the best at Wolverine's big mantra is I'm the I'm the best at what I do, right? And and that's Wolverine's biggest like sort of self description. Like Wolverine's mantra for himself is like I am the best at what I do. And the assumption then is that other people do. Other things and other mutants do other things, and Wolverine is not really entirely concerned with what the other mutants are doing, even to the point that he keeps running at Magneto, even though it's never going to work, right? Because he's like, he's just not 
pro- uh, functioning on a level where he cares about that. So I feel like making Wolverine really culturally sensitive and making like a super PC uh, Wolverine movie would be kind of cheating the legacy of the character a little bit and, to, and sanding the edges off a little bit too much. But I do think that they could have remained aggressive while maybe making it like a little bit less stere- stereotypically like Asia in movies. I don't know. But I mean, again, it's like for me, that didn't really damage the enjoyment of the movie at all. It was just something I knew that I was going to have to talk about on the podcast. Do, 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 do. <laughs> They did. They did stuff like that a couple times, and I'm like, "Oh, come on, yeah, guys." Yeah. Come on. Well, I, I mean, Pete, your, your exhaustion and your exasperation at at some of those things is really interesting to me, and I, I, you know, I feel the same way a lot of the times. Like the the thing that you said that it, that really resonates for me is like it's never good enough, right? And that and that has to do with these things being commercial artifacts and products of a majority culture, right? And and you know, for sale to to a majority culture, right? The job. Just like Wolverine's job is not to is to is to you know rip through the rice paper walls uh, and the the I mean right the shoji screens and the tatami mats and like you know rip through the the walls of the bullet train right like this this movie's job is not to respect uh, the culture of Japan right and it's it's uh, it's never good enough uh, there, there because I think I think in a way there is no there is no good enough uh, certainly not in in cinematic storytelling where you're focusing well, on where you're focusing on a central character and everyone else is kind of ancillary to the main uh the main story that you're telling right everyone else is going to fall by the wayside uh and that's that's just a a, a i don't know that's just a feature of this kind of dramatic storytelling right well john was going to say something i mean well, what i would yeah go ahead if we're talking about if we're talking about characters then yeah i i agree with you because like it's it's impossible to you know, especially in a fast-moving movie like an action film or a superhero movie, you gotta you gotta paint the secondary characters in, in fairly broad strokes. So, to a certain extent, that's I mean, that's quote unquote okay. It's just a question of which which strokes do you choose to paint them with? Like, you know, the the heir apparent to the Yoshida Corporation, for instance, uh, uh, Shingen. Uh, for instance, you know he's you know he's a bit of an asshole and a traditionalist, uh, but he's also really good at ca- at sword fighting because that's just a thing apparently. Like, and he's he's not he doesn't just practice it. He's also uh, I mean he's really good at it to the point that he's a threat to Wolverine briefly. So, I mean, there's there's the details you choose if you only have a few details to choose that that can make a movie more or less you know tasteful let, for let me say, let me say something to the movie's credit about how it deals with this portrayal of japan is that it even chooses to engage with the subject a touchy subject of america's atomic attacks mm-hmm. on japan right it's i feel like it's a bit of a third rail in american pop culture just sort of in the, in the discourse of, of american history in general is that we don't like to talk about it understandably so right it's a pretty horrific act hundreds of thousands of people were killed and you know the the uh, ongoing radiation effects were, were horrific and lasted for generations well, right which um, is why I, I when it's like when wolverine was like okay it's safe to climb out of the of the sewers <laughs> of paris now it's like no dude it's not like like, <laughs> sure, like, there, a, like a the electromagnetic pulse doesn't work like that b the shockwave doesn't work like that three the lingering effects of radiation right like he would have yushida sen would have been dead of of radiation poisoning before they made it a mile 
Yeah, there's that, but so just putting that aside for a moment, right? The fact that it shows the intense devastation, the the, the horror that results from it, and also just you know alludes to the you know the the, the painful recovery and, and regeneration of, of Nagasaki that comes after it, right? I think that's all to the movie's credit um, for bringing up something that America the Americans are uncomfortable with thinking about when it comes to our relationship with Japan. I don't know. That's just me. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I feel like I can't really get entirely on board with any moral system that makes it unacceptable for Wolverine to fight ninjas. You know, like Wolverine Wolverine fighting ninjas is like pretty awesome. And I don't know if we want to like take that out of the world, you know, like introducing that to the storylines was a broadening, not a narrowing of our understanding of the people around us because they had previously been so narrow. Uh, So yeah, I don't know. Pete, I feel like like your answer to this is like, is like your answer when I asked, do we really need Django and chain do we really need uh this movie about slavery and and you said in a world where there are quentin tarantino movies of course we need one about yeah. slavery, right? like, of course that's going to uh that's going to happen and we need that yeah fair fair enough i mean you i know, mean sure, in, the, in a world where we have like outright confederate apologists and you know straight up ku klux klan members do we need django and chain yes but that's a we've, we've already had that t- podcast yeah, i just yeah. wanted to throw that in there real quick Though, though, for what it, for what it's worth, Mark, like um, it doesn't challenge the the hegemonic discourse about dropping the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, right? That that like uh, you know it was it was preferable. It was the best of of many bad alternatives at the time, right? Which is well, what it doesn't even it doesn't even say that. It just it side skirts that entirely. But at least it like puts a human face on some of the Japanese people that uh, that died horrible deaths. Sure, right. Yep, yep, yep. And I mean, speaking of human faces, can we talk about the character of Wolverine a little bit in this movie? Because he does go on a pretty interesting journey. I mean, even his his sort of romantic relationships. I mean, we talk a ton about Superman and about Batman and kind of what they represent and who they are. I mean, other than the University of Michigan, which is really what Wolverine originally represented, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's just like a guy fighting the Hulk and they, they called him Wolverine and they made him yellow and blue like the University of Michigan and he has a bunch of M's and W's in his character design and whatnot. Wait, really? Uh, That's the uh, actual like behind the scenes backstory. Of the- I don't. I don't think he was created to represent the University of Michigan, but I believe that once he was, once you, you came to the idea that you wanted there to be a guy named the Wolverine, like coloring him like the University of Michigan is not a, a uh, is not a coincidence. I mean, like think. I was thinking about this the other day. Think about Stanley and how many characters that Stanley made over like a relatively short period of time, and how so many of them have been so deeply enriched by a rather involuntary process of commercial production. And it's like, how many of them really were meant to carry this kind of load? You know, it's like, oh, it's She-Hulk. It's a Hulk, but it's a girl. You know, like, it's like, yeah, yes, no, She-Hulk is a very textured character who's all about women's liberation. It's like, well, yeah, but it's also like, hey, let's just do Hulk as a girl. Like, why not? You know? <laughs> and it's, I think that they're, one of the lovable things about the Marvel stable in particular is that there's just sort of an adorable, an adorable taxonomy approach where it's just like what thing haven't i turned into a dude yet or a lady well we got these fire ones and these ice ones and this water one and like how about one that's a teacup yeah sure you know like tommy teacup um like you have to make up so many of these characters uh and you have to design them you know you have to 
do the shapes that represent them on the page. Yes, and the I, 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 Tommy Teacup, am here to tell you about British culture. You do not put the tea in before you put the milk in your cup. It is very <laughs> offensive in my culture. Crunk. <laughs> By the way, how great was the the sort of kiss off to the exoticism of the movie when he said, "I came, you came here to say goodbye." Well, sayonara. <laughs> he throws him. <laughs> yeah, you see, he knew yeah. some Japanese. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he knew, he knew, he knew the one thing. So, like, so okay, so the Wolverine has something to do a little bit with the Wendigo, right? Although the Wendigo is a different Marvel character, in the idea of being of this like uh, this Canadian mythical beast that appears when people are cannibals, right? So there's this idea. Uh, although the Wendigo and Dave is a big Dave Schechner, who also writes for the site, is a big expert on the Wendigo uh, because he thinks it's the most ridiculous thing ever. Where it's like when people in the Canadian wilderness resort to cannibalism, uh, the spirit of the Wendigo inhabits them and turns them into monsters, uh, and and that and that happens. And the Wendigo is actually a character in the Marvel universe because everyone's got to make a deadline. Uh, and so the Wolverine kind of represents this sort of Canadian beast figure in the way he's been developed over time but like here it's like he's both sort of a guardian monster right it's almost like a like it's like a miyazaki character it's probably the way we've most closely come across that kind of trope right it's like um like sort of a my neighbor totoro dude Mm -hmm. it's like oh like i was a little girl and there was a story that there was a big monster that was out there and really it was protecting me even though i thought that it was trying to hurt me which is really about male sexuality and like trying to come to terms with its existence in the world right but it's, it's sort of a trope in and of itself so here it's like when he says when he goes back from oh i'm logan he ne- the word x-men is never said in the movie right, right. like it's ne- wolverine never considered like i thought at the very end of the movie when the she asked him hey wolverine where's this plane gonna go i really wanted him to say westchester you know like because then <laughs> the audience would laugh because uh, that's where xavier's mansion is is in westchester and he would go to he's like i'm gonna go back to school <laughs> like i'm gonna get my ged in, in butt kicking and scar chewing but at the at the school for gifted youngsters or whatever um but yeah then he gives the absurd thing of like let's just take off without pointing in a direction which is really not an option when you're flying let's just, let's just not file a flight plan <laughs> Just see what happens. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, but he needs, it's not whether he's going to be an X-Man or not. And it's not whether it's not really whether he's going to resume the role in life he had when he was with Jean Grey or not. It's like he's depressed and he's adrift. And this idea of this guardian beast monster comes up. And he kind of shapes himself into it in reaction to the events of the story. Um, he turns himself into a cat bus, in other words. A cat bus? What? Is that <laughs> that's the reference to Miyazaki? My oh, name Totoro. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, Although the, the, it presupposes the question, like you know, he's if he's redefined himself in the identity of this this guardian beast, as it were, this spirit animal. The only context he has for that is the uh, Yoshida family, and you know, it, 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 I would imagine the some the association is like, oh, I'm the guardian beast of the Ishida family, so I'm going to bum around Japan for a while and just kill off their enemies and hang out with Mariko, who seems to be kind of into me. Oh, cool. And so I've, I've got to go elsewhere and be a soldier. A soldier in defense of whom? Like, who are you defending? You clearly have an agenda of some sort, but it's not specific enough to file a flight plan when the private plane with your assassin sidekick takes off. So... Who are you defending now? Where are you going? Right. It's almost like a title of nobility. 
you know, it's sort of like, oh, he's, you know, the king of the Angles and the Saxons and the heir to the Norman throne and the duke of this and the king prince of that, you know, and the empress of India. It's like, well, let's see. I'm the Wolverine. I'm uh, lieutenant commander of the X-Men. I'm the guardian beast of the Yoshida family. You know, I'm the like, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm the uh, I'm the uh, legal father and guardian of Rogue for some reason. You know, like I'm Kitty Pride stalker, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's like he sort of. And I, I have I feel honorary like, doctorates from the University <laughs> of Michigan of <laughs> <laughs> Exactly, exactly. It's like maybe these different roles that he has, he's okay with them being kind of pluralistic. It I, I keep thinking there was like a what was it Batman Chronicles or something? What was the Batman series of toys and comics where it was like Batman through history? Right? And it was like there's Robot Batman and Samurai Batman. Uh I'm trying to remember what it's called. Um so oh, whatever. While you're looking that up, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the Jean Grey subplot. The, oh the yeah, plot I'm surprised she hasn't him. come up because that, that was great. I thought that was a really interesting part of this movie. Yeah, the, the plot device of him expositing, or I guess bringing the audience along with us by by having these very vivid I guess, dream sequences with his, you know, his former Jean Grey, who with his with his, bra- his brawless mutant to love. Yes, who, spoiler alert for X-Men 3, which I hadn't seen, but I, I gather since it happened, he apparently killed, but he was in love with her, but she was possessed by Dark Phoenix, what have you, what have you. So she's dead, and he's dreaming about her, and is apparently comfortable with it, or it's vivid enough dreams that he can have realistic conversations, uh, and he uses this to expose it. So it's, it's helpful things like when he realizes his healing ability no longer works, he can you know, say it to her, or he's having internal doubts, he can voice that. So in that, in that sense, <laughs> have, I'll keep going. In that sense, we have, it's interesting, again, this gets back to the point where we have a superhero with a history at this point, a superhero with enough of a backstory that they have something else to something else to reference. It's not the the decision being grappled with over the course of the movie is do I or don't I put on a mask and rise challenge of being superheroic. It's given the damage that my superheroic career has done in the past, do I revisit it? Yeah, I, th- I felt like the texture of that was really useful and excellent in the movie. I- it made me think of a couple, two other movies. It made me think of Inception, and it made me think of Pacific Rim. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Pacific Rim, just because it's like they they, they don't have character development there. But, but, but you're, oh, because of the scene with Idris Elba and the Australian guy, right? Where it's like, oh, you're a hotshot who's arrogant. Ah, I, I, that's fine. I don't care who you are. Like it doesn't matter. You're a one-dimensional character. Let's do this thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I was thinking about the very beginning of Wolverine where he, like, is in a dream within a dream, right? He's dreaming that he's in uh, Japan during the nuclear attack. And then he wakes up from that dream and he's with Jean Grey, talking with Jean Grey in her room or in their room together. And then he wakes up from that and he's in the real world. And I thought, like, compare that to what uh, Cobb and his team encounter when uh, when they do the Inception thing, right? When they go within a dream, within a dream, within a dream. Um, the things that they encounter are not nearly as textured or complex as even Wolverine's relationship with Jean Grey, which is st- 
still a very simplistic human relationship, right? Like, it's like, oh, I love this girl, and she was my friend's girl, and I could never really be with her, and now she's dead, and I killed her because she was inhabited by a space monster, right? And it's like most of our human relationships are more complex than that, right? And so, <laughs> but, but like when you go into, 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 um, into the guy's brain in Inception, there's a, there's a, a ski chalet, right? And there's, I mean, yes, there's like a really nice dining room with a lot of individual details, but the things that happen there are very flat from a human perspective. There isn't a lot that's happening that's really emotionally charged or, or uncomfortable, right? Like, like Wolverine's layers are uncomfortable places to be, and they involve really specific people that had really specific effects on him. And I thought about how much more... Uh, realistic that is and true that is to the human experience of memory than these sort of these sort of uh, other sorts of simulated ideas of memory and experience that we've seen where it's just like a place right like or a moment right and 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 the the character walks into someone else's dream like when when mako i shouldn't get too deep into pacific rim and i won't give any spoilers uh to anything too deep into the movie but like you know the, the girl has this memory of a kaiju attack when she was a little girl and at one point one of the characters goes into that through the the machine and sees it but there's no complexity to it at all she's just sitting there crying and it's just like it's much 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 more straight down the middle it really speaks to me of a sort of lack of focus or imagination in terms of writing these scenes out, or maybe just that uh, and I have convenience of history. And this might be one of the advantages that superhero movies have in the marketplace today and the cultural mindshare marketplace is, you know, we're more used to seeing each other's lives in this public sphere through social media and through the kind of this sort of theater of success that we all set up for our lives with the Facebooks and the Instagrams and all that other nonsense. We're more used to a more realistic idea of strangeness of, and of people's experiences. Uh, and so we kind of maybe demand it of people. And so it's no longer okay for it just to be like a cop who doesn't follow the rules. It has to be like a cop who doesn't follow the rules and also fell in love with the daughter of a Greek shipping magnate, you know, who happens to also have ninja powers, you know, like and, and, that's, that's <laughs> and, also, and also died and comes back as an eight year old. Exactly, and died and come back and, and you know, your dad was a pugilist and you grew up on the streets, you know, and it's like, it's like the kind of character that you run into in like Lethal Weapon, or a movie that I rewatched this weekend, Executive Decision, which is a marvelous Steven Seagal movie, <laughs> <laughs> which kind of holds up. It's really, really slow, but it's like has about the depth of half an, ep- half an episode of Law and Order because <laughs> it's like, oh, Kurt Russell kind of likes Halle Berry. All right, I mean, so would I. <laughs> like, she's a very nice, pretty lady who does a great job in that movie. So I shouldn't call her a lady; it's diminishing. We should continue on this line of thought, but just what we're talking about. Uh, memory and the wolverine i wanted to clarify something that's been really bothering me about this movie um the whole memory loss thing right in the yeah. first at least two if not the third x-men movie like it's a lot of it about like a wolverine doesn't remember how he got to where he was like he just had these like odd flashbacks back to the uh, project x experience and getting the adamantium and all that other business right but in this movie like something happened to him in 1945 and he clearly remembers that Right. There's this like continuity of, of memory, which doesn't seem to be affected by the, all the crazy memory wiping things that happen. Is that explained in any of the other X-Men movies or is that just a, a convenient plot uh, point that they papered over? I don't know. I mean, like he loses his memory in X-Men Origins, like he loses it and it's gone and, and or in a per- particularly stupid way, which I won't spoil, except by saying it's really, really dumb. Like, it, and I, I know I'm stepping outside the overthinking it, you know, ages at this point by passing critical judgment on a movie as opposed to taking it as an artifact in itself. But seriously, X-Men Origins Wolverine is a stupid movie. 
It's just <laughs> dumb. It's written for dumb people by dumb people. <laughs> that aside, so he loses his memory completely, in, or almost completely in X-Men Origins. And, he, I mean, he we see him get some of it back in X-Men 2, where, you know, he figures out a bit of the Project X thing. I will note that in this movie, in the Wolverine, when... Uh, when Yukio shows up with the samurai sword and says, hey, you know, a friend of yours named Yoshida wants to give this back to you. Logan's reaction throughout is always sort of subdued. And that could just be that could be just, you know, Logan being subdued. Like he never shows a lot of like affection or attachment to anybody. But it could also be him being like, OK, I remember Yoshida. Sure. Let's go to Tokyo. I guess I've got a sword coming. And it, it's a kind of thing that's revealed to him through dreams rather than through conscious recollection, because that's his brain starting to piece itself back together. But, it, but it, you know, you could also interpret it as for the first third of the movie, he's just going along with what people tell him. Like, OK, yeah, we met Nagasaki. Sure. And you gave me a sword and I saved your life. OK, cool. What's that you want? My healing powers? Uh, not cool, dude. I'm going to peace out. Yeah, I, I think that in canon, Wolverine's memories aren't entirely absent. They're just really, really sketchy. Like, he comes across things that he sort of remembers. There are certain specific things he remembers conveniently, but he doesn't really trust his memories, and it's sort of part of his personality that doesn't dwell on them very much. Uh, and, and so that's it sort of makes sense, but that's also sort of a comic book explanation where it's like, okay, well, we want to do this flashback where everybody meets in World War II and they all fight together, right? Where like Wolverine and Captain America hang out. Right, uh, and we want to do this flashback, but we don't want to go through the same freaking annoying thing we have to go through every time. Where Wolverine's like, "I don't remember any of this happening," and people have to be like, "Well, Wolverine, that's because your memory was wiped by the Weapon X project." Here, let's just go back to the flashback. So sometimes it's like, uh, "Okay, I think I remember this." Right, and I guess if you want to think of it from a storytelling perspective, Wolverine and the memory loss he endured during the Weapon X project is. That's like a story for a young Wolverine where he has this like huge bad thing that happened, this huge traumatic bad thing that happened uh, that has sort of totally changed his life and made it impossible for him to go back. And it compels him to a degree. It burns his bridges with the past. Like he can't go back there. Whatever it was that happened there, you know, it's done. It can't be fixed. Right. So he must, he's compelled to go forward. It's sort of memory wiping in Marvel serves a similar role as orphaning does in Dickens. Right. Where it's like, well, we're going to make Oliver Twist an orphan because if he has parents to go home to, none of this matters. Right. Like, and it's like, well, you know, well, Wolverine could just sort of spend all his time trying to hunt down the people who don't work the Weapon X program. But that's boring. So let's just have him forget it, right? Or like, and let's have him, you know, or maybe even it's the other way around. You can play it both ways. You'd be like, oh, he doesn't remember, but that means he has to find out. And that gives us a reason to find out. It's, it's a storytelling device. And, th- and Wolverine, the Wolverine, is a story of an old Wolverine. And in that sense, his memory loss is more kind of a function of the amount of time he's lived and him not wanting to revisit old memories that are really painful and his sort of like uh, in- increasing mental inflexibility as he kind of withdraws farther and farther into depression. Right, and it's just like I can't, I can't bear to change. I have to live in bear. Ha ha, waka waka. I have to be in the woods. <laughs> like that's what I can handle, right? And so like I, nothing before this really matters. And yes, I forgot it also because of a Canadian military experiment. <laughs> like, but that's not that's. So I guess it's it definitely feels like a change. I don't remember any moment where Professor X touches Wolverine on the forehead and says, I unlocked your mental barriers. You can remember everything now, right? Like, I don't think that ever happens. Yeah, I don't think, um, I don't think that happens. I mean, yeah. and, and it is, and the amnesia is also, it's a useful plot device to give him 
the aspect of being weathered with like, you know, almost two centuries worth of history without actually having to instill like all of the necessary, like overly complicated backstory and probably neuroses that would come with two centuries worth of history. Cause think about it. If you actually lived for two centuries, you would just be tired of everything. Like, like <laughs> I don't know. I you, figure like I would have hit DDR and just kept going. <laughs> you'd, you'd have, you'd have outlived everything. That's like, you'd be living in a culture that's paced for people who live like a third at most of your lifespan. And so you'd just be, you'd just be tired of everything. Whereas, you know, in order to create a character who wants to be part of the world. And as we can see, Logan barely does, but at the same time has much more experience than anyone in the world. You have to have someone who's lived for a couple, for many hundreds of years, but has forgotten most of it. So he's just sort of like vaguely grizzled. Yeah. It's also interesting because Wolverine's core mutant power is regeneration, right? And and that's, that's the one thing other than the claws that, that really defines him as a character. Um, when you think about other characters' mutant powers, uh, there are a lot of them that are the same. I mean, most superheroes, when you actually get into an action sequence, do the same thing. Like a superhero, a Superman action sequence, a Wolverine action sequence, a Hulk action sequence, they all could be the same. They could all just be the guy runs out, he gets punched, he punched, he flies into a wall, he's hurt, he gets up, he punches the other guy. Right? Like, it's like, whatever. It doesn't necessarily have to be different. And the challenge is, okay, we have to inform these things with things that make them different. So one of the cool things about Wolverine being so such a, a character steep in all this history and this history that he can't remember is that it, it does communicate the difference between invulnerability and regeneration. Like, it's not like Wolverine's never been wounded. It's not like Wolverine's never bled or never been hurt. He's fought in wars. You know, he's been out there. He's endured all sorts of things, and he keeps going because he keeps re- re- renewing you know, and regenerating uh, as a blessing, as a curse, whatever. But that's kind of different from, say, like, Hulk, who also has powerful regeneration, but it's so powerful that it, it basically doesn't even matter. Like, Hulk is just a psychic force that doesn't even care about the historical trappings. Like, think about Wolverine in World War II versus, like, Hulk in World War II. Like, if Hulk went to World War II and beat up all the Nazis, like, like would he even remember? Like, if you asked him later, it's like, man, Hulk, I remember when you fought in World War II. He's like, what, you mean that time? <laughs> like, uh, was that the one where there were sausages, or was that the one where, where there was uh, sushi? I don't remember which one that was. You know, because you know, like, uh, Hulk doesn't Hulk doesn't experience uh, the subtleties of cultural experience when he's when he's raging, um, and of course Superman would be like, oh yeah, no, I remember when the Molotov Ribbendorf Pact like failed, <laughs> and I was really really frowned upon that failure of the rule of law to govern the peace in the Eastern Front uh, that Hitler had to go. Um, but yeah, anyway, I don't know. I think I think it's communicative of it it helps. It's again, it's also kind of a University of Michigan solution in that it's like we already have a character who regenerates because that's what we gave him when we were rushing him out the door as a Hulk villain. So now that we know he regenerates, well what kind of backstory can he have that makes it relevant that he regenerates and that makes his regeneration feel different than what other characters can do? Um and one of them is to have dead girlfriends, I guess. Although that's yeah. kind of common. That's kind of common. I mean, it's not a Christopher Nolan movie as much as it starts with the Inception moment. Well, well it, so. it, it lets him it lets him become a brooding antihero, which was part of you know the appeal of Wolverine and why he's become you know probably the most popular uh, character in the Marvel stable. Yeah. He's he's a brooding antihero because if you have a guy who murders a lot of people but doesn't brood over the the sins of his past, you just have a murderer. Yeah, <laughs> you, just, you just have a sociopathic killer, and and you have the Punisher, who's who's probably the second most popular character in the in the Marvel stable. Which, hmm, but but that that aside, I mean, you you do need that 
element of romanticizing, like that element of regret, of of loss, of internal pain to prove that he's, you know, to prove that he's living an examined life because otherwise he's just he's just Lobo. Yeah, <laughs> bastiches. Um, so speaking of antiheroism, uh, how about the scene where he throws the DK off the uh, off the the building into the pool. I feel like that was a really interesting anti-hero scene. The DK being, of course, the Drift King from Tokyo Drift, <laughs> who is the government minister of this movie. Like, he is, the, I mean, that, of course, I'm like, Drift King, Drift King! The guy who's uh, Machiko's girl, uh, boyfriend, fiancé, is the is the big bad. Well, he's not the big bad. He's not the Yakuza, but he's the primary antagonist of... He's a henchman, yeah. The Minister of, Defe- uh, minister of Justice, Noburo. Yes, exactly. And so, so Wolverine throws him off of the railing in the hotel room because he arranged to kill his own fiance. He hired a hit out with some ninjas on his own fiance. Um, and so Wolverine gets pissed at him and throws him out the window. And then he sort of remarks on how he doesn't really care that he didn't die because he didn't really check. But he's, I guess he seems sort of glad that he didn't die. This moment to me didn't feel as as mean <laughs> as it might have been, maybe because of Hugh Jackman's delivery, or maybe it's just because I buy into the anti-hero thing. But, like, contrasting it with the amount of innocent people who died during the action sequences of Men in Steel, like, I wasn't as bothered by it morally. I mean, did you guys have a reaction to this moment? When uh, my, like, there's a guy? my reaction to it was I very much felt like that was a scene they shot and decided in retrospect whether it would be a PG-13 or an R-rated movie. Like, Okay, if it's an R-rated if it's an R-rated version, he's going to hit the pavement. If it's PG-13, there's a swimming pool and everyone's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Team Rocket's blasting off again. Cuz yeah, I mean, you know, this this was a very expensive film, so they're going to shoot multiple versions of the same scene and they're going to go back and forth with the MPAA and decide over the course of a long period of time how many killings Wolverine can get away with in order to you know keep that PG-13 versus versus R rated line and that's like I mean he- and that's that's a real thing and I mean it is as crass as John makes it out to be right and they call it I mean they call it uh, shooting different versions or shooting uh, uh, variant versions of scenes or even shooting you know other angles within the same scene is called coverage in making movies and they call it PG-13 coverage uh, you make an R rated movie and you shoot a lot of PG-13 coverage in case, you know, in case you try to, uh, you know, to get a lower rating for presumably wider, uh, wider audience appeal and, and higher grosses, right? Like, so that's, that's a real thing. And, you know, but what that means is that this comes right after the hookers and blow TNA scene where we see, right, like the, the side, the side of one of the hookers, like in, in outline, right? Like we see the waist of, uh, of one of the, uh, so that means that there is is a much uh there is a hard r version of that scene uh that got yeah. shot right that that was th- that was thrown away don't you mean the business casual hookers and blow scene he's wearing, he's wearing a tie <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. He's, he somehow pulled off that technique of removing every part of his top but his tie which i've never quite figured out like how do you get the shirt it, never... it's, a, it's a japanese thing guys yeah, <laughs> yeah you should you should you should go to a japanese art museum sometime all naked guys in ties all the time <laughs> And squid monsters. That's all they have. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I get. Was that also? I guess the scene where he spares the life of the dad, right? Where he's like, "Well, you tried to kill your daughter, so that's punishment enough. Live with it, uh, right?" And like, he he doesn't really kill him. Well, there, I he, mean, there are a lot of impalings, right, in this movie that yeah. happen below the frame line, right? There's a lot of c- carnage just below uh, the bottom of the screen. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that makes sense, I guess. And I mean, I guess it did sort of make me feel like while I was watching it that it isn't really if you're an if you're a production executive or like a developer working on the Man of Man of Steel and you really are just totally grizzled and and don't really care for storytelling at all. Like to be handed Superman really kind of sucks because you see these scenes and you're like, oh, we'd love to do that. You know, like we'd love to have some below the frame impaling. Like that sounds awesome. That gets you the PG-13 and it gets that great moment. But Superman doesn't do that because we got this stupid Superman, right? So it's like, oh, how do we deal with this? This annoyance that I have. It's like buying a car that has roll down windows, right? And it's like, I know it's old fashioned, but come on. People. Um, and it's like, I could feel like it's not fair. And I think the reality is it isn't fair. Like Wolverine can get away with more as a character murdering people, stabbing people than like Batman or Superman can. And I just, I just don't think it's, I don't, you can force it, I guess, and I think that's what we're seeing. But I did sympathize a little bit with the commercial interests that want to make grittier versions of blue sky superheroes. Um, but yeah, okay. I want to jump in here. This might be the thing that we uh, that sends this podcast home. Is this um, uh, talk a little bit more about this? Hey, idea Mark, we don't know of- where we're going. We've got no flight plan. Let's start <laughs> with. <laughs> I just I just want to say, you know, my father is a pilot, and so I, I grew up around private aviation and have, you know, flown a plane and have, you know, done a lot of, of flying. You cannot take off if they don't know where you're going. It is right, Matt, it Matt, is, Matt, Matt. Japanese airports are different. <laughs> Did anyone else, when they saw the credit scene of the two years later, be like, well, that's what happens when you don't play where you're going, Wolverine? Like, <laughs> a long flight. <laughs> he ran out of gas in the Pacific Ocean. You had to paddle your way to California. <laughs> so, so about this idea about Wolverine's uh, in, immortality, invulnerability, whatever you want to call it, this being a curse. Now, um, this is one of the main things that drew, drew me to this movie, uh, presenting this idea that right, this power, this incredible ability that he has is actually a curse. This thing which brings uh, great sorrow to Wolverine. Um, and the movie plays around with it. Eventually, he gets over this idea of it being a curse and doesn't actually want to die. But um, what it does make me think about is this uh, idea of not necessarily uh, uh, the meta idea of, a, of an immortal character as a curse. That is to say that when you, when you set up a character so that he can't age, then that is in some ways a curse. It's a curse on the actor who has to keep looking a certain, uh, within a certain age range to keep playing that character. And it's a curse on the people who own that intellectual property that they can't just like, keep making that movie with that character and just have him, him or her age uh, as one would normally Dude. expect. So with the, the, the other notable examples of characters with this quote unquote characters and actors with this curse would be um, uh, Data, right? Brent Spiner from Star Trek. They couldn't keep making movies with Data because Brent Spiner was getting older. And of course, notably oh, you've been, you've uh, Arnold, Schwar- Arnold Schwarzenegger and Terminators One through Three. Well, I, I got to say, uh, Hugh Jackman has done a lot more P90X than Christopher Lambert ever did as the Highlander. Right? Like, <laughs> like, like, you're just like, oh, well, you got to stay in shape. Like, you got to look young. It's like, Christopher Lambert doesn't care. I mean, Chris, the Highlander, if you're looking for a movie that addresses this problem, the movie you're looking for is called Highlander. Okay. And uh, the Queen album of the songs from it is called A Kind of Magic. Right? It's like the song, who wants to live forever? Right? That whole thing. Mm. Um 
And the answer is like, well, sword fighting is kind of awesome. <laughs> you know, like, uh, but yeah, no, it is a curse. And of course, then it's like, okay, we had to change to Adrian Paul, and now we got to do Highlander the Raven. There's, of course, the Doctor Who solution, which is just give your character a new body every once in a while whenever contract negotiations turn sour or the guy dies, right? And like, okay, well, he can have a new appearance, and then you work that into the story. So it is kind of, it's a curse for the movie producers and whatnot, yeah. But um, I mean, there is a degree to which having many lives is like kind of a sweet sublimity too right like you kind of want to be the highlander a little bit right am i just making that up like mm-hmm. he lives on a sometimes he lives on a houseboat on the sand and he's got like a nice wine collection and like he's you know dating some curator at a museum and then he gets to sword fight a confederate colonel and cut his head off which who didn't want to do that at some point <laughs> you know like but <laughs> it does it does give you an excellent opportunity to never have to commit to a relationship it's like well i'd love to stick around but i can't grow old even if you do and it'll get weird so i'm just gonna peace out uh it's been fun for the you know this first three to six months which is kind of a honeymoon period of any relationship anyway so uh ultimately it it worked well for us but don't worry you'll haunt me in my dreams for the remainder of my immortal life and uh maybe give me hints when i need to get out of a superhero funk maybe i don't know uh we'll figure out i'm off to japan peace there's a well, great bit in oh sorry go ahead oh uh, no yeah you first pete oh so there's a great bit in highlander 3 the final dimension <laughs> with mario van peoples of course there we're is. like we're, we're basically like this is a meta movie about christopher lambert not wanting to do these movies anymore <laughs> 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 where it's like because highlander 2 the quickening is famously one of the worst movies ever although you can't see the original cut on netflix they only have the renegade cut which is merely mediocre but that's the one where they're like oh remember how we were historical warriors no you're aliens they sort of tried to dragon ball z it and unfortunately <laughs> they, they did not pre-program the sense of whimsy that dragon ball did to be able to survive that making everybody aliens thing but like like, they were like, you know, Christopher Lambert doesn't really want to fight Mario Van Peebles, who is like this last other immortal who was buried in the Himalaya Mountains, and now he's back, and he's got shape-shifting powers and all this nonsense. And so Christopher Lambert is depressed. He has to go fight this guy again. He doesn't want to do it. He feels like he's going to lose. And, and he has to get his groove back. And so he goes on a trip to Scotland. And there's and he gets and I think the thing that really sticks with me the image he really gets sticks with me is he gets a sweater, right? Like he gets this like sweater of like Highland wool, this like cable knit gray sweater. Um, and there's a scene of him like sitting in a bar where he's like wearing the sweater and he's like got a beer and they're playing some Scottish music and he kind of cracks like a half smile, right? And it's sort of like you know this is this is this is really nice. <laughs> You know, like, like this is kind of great, um, and and there's, the, I think there's a sense in the movie from just sort of a of a movie as moving pictures perspective that like the real heart of the character arc is like Christopher Lambert getting the sweater, and just and just being like, oh, you know what, I'm kind of okay with being an immortal Scottish warrior who fights Mario Van Peebles in New Jersey, uh, as long as I have a good outer garment that makes me feel warm and cozy, right? Like, I mean, isn't that the answer that we all have in real life, which is sort of like little comforts are a, a huge aid in like developing the coke mechanisms to deal with big problems um i mean i don't know i maybe you guys uh, i mean then highlander endgame well, yeah in that, that it's all about the little things and that you know when a marriage falls apart it's not really because the husband wouldn't do the dishes it's because of you know the unspoken issues surrounding the whole failing marriage which were manifested in an argument over whether or not the husband's turn to do the dishes whereas you know his argument is he just came back from work and it's been a long day and it doesn't really matter if the dishes get done tonight etc cetera, etc cetera. let's have an immortal sword fight yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> I'm back in a robot suit to exact my vengeance, and I've taken your wife hostage. That's like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which I also saw a little bit of last weekend, where it's just really transparently about real-life, rather venal relationship issues, and it's like, but it's also a gunfight! Um... Which I always felt was a little bit of a stretch, but I understand more the older I get than I did when I saw it when it first came out. <laughs> and of course, they're immortal, right? The Jolies and the and the Pits and their chiseled features. Um, well, you know, we may as well be immortal on this podcast because we'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe we maybe we should leave the conversation there. Um, so, if you want to uh, join the conversation, if you have something to say about the Wolverine. Uh, or about the the Wolverine, um, you can uh, email us at podcastedoverthinkingit.com. You can call 203-285-6401. Call or text, in fact, 203-285-6401. We hope you liked the listener feedback episode a couple, uh, couple episodes back. We're going to do another one before too long, uh, even if we release it midweek as a, as a sort of special podcast supplement, because it's very nice to get interactivity on the show and to hear what you think. Uh, and if you want to let us know what you think, probably the best thing to do is to come leave a comment on the show notes for uh, this episode that you can find on the site. Hey, if you like this episode, uh, rate us on iTunes and leave a comment there on iTunes. If you don't like this episode, do nothing. Also, if you like this episode, <laughs> uh, share it with a friend. We're trying to get the word out to more people about this, uh, this little show that we do that we've been doing for almost five years now. We had the five-year anniversary of the site back in January. We're going to have the five-year anniversary of the podcast later on this year. Uh, so, um, you know, tell a friend, Hey, email them, say, Hey, I thought you might like this. Uh, thought you might like this show. We're actually going to cut together a couple of promo, a couple of like little 32nd minute long promo things featuring, uh, featuring some, you know, popular segments, including our, uh, our Greek chorus of the steel girders from man of steel, which, uh, <laughs> which someone said on Twitter, they played that for a friend, uh, and got the friend to, uh, subscribe to the podcast on the strength of that bit. So actually, Hey, that's that's a go-to if you want uh, play that bit for a friend if you want them to uh subscribe to the podcast and join the global community of overthinkers who convene every day on overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve sayonara podcast Mr. Yoshida, our plan is to capture this mutant and drain his the healing power of his bone marrow. So we just need to break open the adamantium in his skeleton somehow. Excellent. Construct me a robot made of the world's most expensive metal. And I'll <laughs> chop the adamantium off myself using a giant sword. <laughs>